Psalm 47 has got a wonderful phrase in it, God has gone up with a shout. And as we think about those words in the Psalms, they always challenge us in our faith. Do we really believe that God is king and reigning over all the nations? Do we really believe that? And does that belief come through in the way that we live our lives, how we view the world? The Psalms will challenge us constantly in our faith as well as our worldview. And as we consider the text before us from the 23rd chapter of Matthew, we are somewhat now coming from uh, Daniel 9 into Matthew 23, picking up our series here that is just prior to the Olivet Discourse, and then we'll then be flowing into that shortly. I'm going to take two passages here, and I'm going to juxtapose them one to another as we consider the great theme that's before us and what Jesus is actually interested in speaking to his audience then and his audience today. I'm going to begin reading at chapter 23 of Matthew, beginning at verse 34, going through Matthew 24, verse 2. Then I'm going to take and go over to John chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 13 through 23. See if you hear any similarities in the two passages, or at least the context out of which these passages come. Now hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, All these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And now I'm going to John chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? 
Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said to them, And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Our gracious Father, as we consider these two texts before us, we ask that the Spirit would guide us in the truth. We might know the truth, and the truth would set us free. And that we might know the freedom of Christ and stand fast in the liberty wherewith he has set us free. To be able to enjoy the life that you have given to us in him. And as you have clothed us in his righteousness and united us together in him, we rejoice in not only the life that we now live, but in the future that he holds We pray that you would open the eyes of our heart that we can apprehend and understand the truth before us, and that we would not resist the truth or despise the things that he has spoken, but we would with open hearts and humble spirits come with teachable minds and eager to be changed and to see this world changed for his glory. So bring forth the fruit that would be pleasing to you and that would glorify your name even in the course of the preaching and the hearing now as we offer this time up to you in worship. And we pray this in the strong name of our victorious and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. A worldview is a way in which we see life. It is the lens through which we look and interpret all the things that are going on around us. And the lens that we then see and interpret the world has been shaped by stories and symbols and praxis or just routine activities that we go through sometimes and oftentimes without thinking about it. Our worldview is oftentimes and most often not something that we are aware of. It's there. There's so much accumulation of stories and symbols and activities that we cannot take it all in of what is actually formed and shaped the way that we think, and the way that we view the world. Our fallen nature has such a detrimental impact on our worldview that it literally blinds us from God and His intent for how He has for us in this life. And then on top of our fallen nature, the Scripture says the God of this world has blinded our our hearts by putting a veil over it. And, And here it is, we are just completely in the hands of the grace and mercy of God to lift that veil and to show us our intent, the purpose He's created us, the direction He has for us, and who we are for His glory. And the truth 
must be applied over and over and over in our lives until our minds are beginning to be changed and we begin to see with with new perspective the world that God has created and what He has done for us in Christ Jesus, His Son. That's why the Apostle Paul would say in Romans 12, 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. Here on the fourth Lord's Day in Advent, we're thinking much about the advent of Messiah. We look back to his first advent as well as we look forward to his second advent, all in this season that will culminate in a day that we consider the birth of Jesus Christ, which will happen to be this calendar year, next Lord's Day. Next week is Christmas, the day that we consider the birth of the Messiah, the coming of the kingdom of God upon this earth. And we try to take in all of what that means. As we see those promises in the scripture that you meditated on earlier, even in the the Davidic dynasty that God had promised to David, and yet there's going to be a priesthood completely inseparable from that kingdom. What does it all mean? What's its purpose? And what it means for this world and how the Messiah will shape the worldview through story and symbol and praxis is what is before us here at this very important junction. What does it all mean that that God became flesh and dwelt among us? For that is the mystery of godliness, the Scripture tells us. What impact did Christ have on the world when He became human? What impact did Christ have when He rose from the dead? Did that change this world forever? Did it have a lasting impact upon the earth and creation? And what relevance is it that Jesus had a physical body like you and me? Those questions are really at the very heart of the passages before us as Jesus is confronting the worldview of the Jews. In the two passages before us, we see Jesus confronting the Jews and their worldview, a worldview in which they likely had very little knowledge of the way that they believed and how they thought and how they were acting, the activities they were engaged in, because that's often how a worldview is. It's just how they viewed the world. In the two passages before us, and as he's confronting this worldview, we see this happening on two separate occasions. Each of those occasions, from Matthew 23, or Matthew 21 to 23, I should give a broader context, and John chapter 2, those two events and these two passages are separated by about three years. Both of those occasions took place at the same time of the year, and that was the annual feast of Passover. They both took place in the city of Jerusalem, and more specifically, they both took place in the temple. 
there was a time in which they took place, and there was a place in which these two activities took place, and time and space are integrally important to what Jesus is engaging their minds and teaching them and changing or confronting their worldview. On both occasions, he went into the temple and cleansed it. On both occasions, the subject matter on which he spoke was the temple, which was the most important symbol in all of the Jewish life and the Jewish praxis. On the first occasion, happened shortly after he performed his first miracle in changing the water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana. And then he enters into Jerusalem, into the temple, and then that is what we read in John chapter 2, where he makes a whip of cords and he drives out the money changers overturning the tables of those who sold the sacrificial animals to those who then made pilgrimage to Jerusalem from afar for the annual Passover time. And he chastened them. Exhorted them by correcting their behavior, telling them that they're making God's house, His house, a house of merchandise, when it is a house of prayer. He's in the temple when he is doing this. The second occasion, at the end of his public ministry then, some three, three and a half years later, which we pick up in Matthew 21, where he enters in Jerusalem triumphantly, now openly proclaiming he is the Messiah. He is the great king. He is the prophet. He is the priest. After the order of Melchizedek. And on that last occasion, that second occasion, this is just days before his crucifixion. On the first occasion, standing in the temple courtyard, having cleansed the temple, the leaders then of the Jews ask him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? To which he answers, destroy this temple and I will build it up in three days. And he was speaking about the temple of his body. On the second occasion, again standing in the temple courtyard after his triumphal procession into Jerusalem, having gone straight to the temple, having done the same thing, cleansing the temple, the leaders come and question, by what authority do you do these things? Of which he begins to answer again and begins to tell them about their temple, and that their house will be left desolate to them. After which the disciples begin showing him around the temple. We'll look at the buildings of the temple. Often, and it's the language almost of Psalm 48, where it says, go throughout Jerusalem and, and examine her bulwarks and, and look at her palaces and her stones in a way that we are to see what grand beauty and power that God has brought here in Jerusalem and in his sanctuary here upon the earth. And, and the disciples were, in the like of that psalm, showing Jesus 
this temple that had been 46 years and being restored by Herod and bringing it to a greater glory and, and it was still in process of doing that. And when we see these two passages side by side, we can see some of the worldview of the Jews at the time. Why did Jesus have to cleanse it a second time three years later? We should ask ourselves that. Because of the Jewish praxis that was obviously already going on, an activity that they did, a, a habitual routine that they did year after year at Passover was to sell animals and exchange money for those who were traveling Jews to make their pilgrimage each year at that annual feast. And they did it in such a way that there was extortion and it was an inappropriate place and, and occasion and the way that they were going about it. And, and the Jews of the time, you can almost hear them say, well, well that's capitalism. And Jesus would say, no, that's blasphemy and defiling God's house. As one contemporary author would say, I, I wonder how long it would take Jesus to cleanse his temple if he came back today. Because this was such a part of the life and the way of doing things for the Jews, year after year. Because it was such a part of the way they thought. Because they did not respond to Jesus in the massive correction three and a half years ago. It continued another year and another year until he, he had to do it all over again. To me, that indicates this was just a regular habitual praxis among the Jews of the time. And that's the power of worldview. And if we're not open to Jesus changing our minds and to radically correcting our behavior, our minds and our ways and our story and our symbols and our praxis, we too will continue right on in the manner of life that, we, that eventually leads to his rejection. In the narrative before us, Jesus is standing at the heart of history. He is standing in the temple, addressing the most important earthly thing to the Jews, the temple. The Jews did not understand what was going on. They didn't see it. Their hearts were hard. Their spirits were proud and their minds were closed. And yet Jesus was about to connect heaven to earth and to restore all of the fellowship that has been lost between heaven and earth and about to bring peace here upon the earth that will be for everlasting. He's about to connect the narrative of what is in Genesis 1 and 2 with the narrative of Revelation 21 and 22 and this arc that goes from creation all the way to glory. 
he is now standing at the middle crux of this. Not necessarily chronologically, but he's standing at the heart of history. He's right at the intersection of it all. Between the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, and between heaven and earth. Talking to them about the temple. For us to understand the importance and the necessity of the incarnation of the body of Christ, we need to understand some of the theology of the temple. That's what he was telling them. Messiah came, and when he came, he was doing so much more than what the Jews could see, and he was doing so much more than what the Jews had ever thought. As Paul would say in Colossians 1, verses 19 and 24, it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things in earth or things in heaven, having made peace by the blood of his cross. He's bringing it all together. He's summing it all up. This reconciling of heaven and earth to God, this bringing everything into God's creation back into the shalom and the, the peace in which he created it, is what the temple is all about. It's what it symbolized. But the temple was never meant to affect that. It was only meant to show that as an object lesson, if you will. But never had the Jews considered a crucified Messiah is what would bring it all about. David's king sitting upon David's throne, crucified by the Roman pagan government. This is a worldview change of colossal proportion. Last week, as we considered briefly a sketch of the timing of when this would come about from the passage of Daniel chapter 9, we're now into the very heart of the prophecy where Daniel 9 is being fulfilled. And while the Jews understood that timing, they did not see Jesus as their Messiah. And we are in the passage that Jesus is now sharply scolding the Jews for their rejection of the prophets that God sent to them and rejection of now God's own son that he sent to them. This is the words of the parable in which he was explaining in Matthew 21 and 22. And Jesus is warning them what will transpire in God's judgment that will happen in their own generation not many years from the time that he spoke. All these things will happen in this generation. The house will be desolate. It will be destroyed. And yet there is going to be one that is greater than the temple 
here among you today. This morning we will consider this big picture, this temple theology, as we then come into the incarnational aspect of this next Lord's Day for Christmas. As we consider what is the temple? Really what is this that was so dear to the Jews, but really what is it from God's perspective of what it was intended to be? Because that is the subject, that is the primary subject in both of those texts and where Jesus is standing and in the time of Passover. The temple, as we have explained in the past, is a special and unique space that God creates here on the earth and where he dwells with and fellowships with his people here. And that is an astounding kind of thought if you think about it. Eternal God, immortal, invisible, who knows no beginning, who has no end, who is from generation to generation, does not have a body like us, who created space and time and man and matter completely separate from these things in a holy sense, he now engages with his creation in such a way that eternal God that knows no time, who is not bound by space, comes and dwells in such a way here upon the earth with man that he has created in his image. And it's a special place. And from the very beginning of creation, God has created time, but he's given us a special time, the Sabbath. He has created space, but he's given us a special space in which to meet and fellowship with him. And this is a part of our earthly dwelling where heaven and earth come together. That's the essence of the temple. And that's why heaven and earth and the temple theology are so important because he's saying where we are and what you see in these stones and these buildings are but just a signpost. Jesus, his body is the reality now of what these things pointed to. Well, the first temple actually began in Genesis 1 and 2, the Garden of Eden. When you think about what the temple is, and then how subsequent scripture relates to the Garden of Eden through the symbology or symbolism of the temple, we began to see that the Garden of Eden itself is a temple. When we consider the whole of scripture, we learn from later temples something about the garden, and we learn something about the garden from later temples, and it, they, they go together. So much that they go together, Ezekiel is going to literally push them together so that there's no mistake that the garden was a temple and the future eschatological temple is a garden city. And so as we learn about the very beginning temple before the fall, it's going to instruct us something of what God was doing in these sign posts and these object lessons through the tabernacle and the temple, what he is prophesying, Ezekiel 40 through 48, and then the, the, the reality coming in Christ and his church, of which has an eschatological fulfillment in 
Revelation 21 and 22. So we're starting in Genesis 1 and 2, and we're going to move this way through and end up in Revelation 21 and 22, but we're considering this initial garden here for a few minutes. I'm going to give you nine observations that will help us to see that the Garden of Eden was the first temple. This is going to help us to understand what's going on in the tabernacle, what's going on in the temple, what God's intent was in dwelling with man as he creates man deliberately out of the earth in the context of space and time and now comes to meet with him in a special place, the temple. And when Jesus makes a statement that his body is the real temple that will be raised up in three days, speaking about his resurrection, that will help us to understand how creation and the garden and glory all come together right now for you and me who are united inseparably to that glorious resurrected body today and as we come sacramentally to partake of it at the table. I'm going to use some of the data from Gregory Beale, who has written about this temple theology a bit, and I think his points are helpful to us here. I'll give you nine quick points. The, the later temple was a place of God's unique presence upon the earth. And yet, likewise, the Garden of Eden is a place where Adam walked and talked with God, as we see in the early part of the scriptures. The same terminology that is used in Genesis 3.8 for God walking and talking with Adam in the garden is the same scripture, the same words, the same phrase that is used of God's presence in the tabernacle in several passages later. Number two. In Genesis 2.15, God placed Adam in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. Those two Hebrew words are really important in the way that the Spirit uses them subsequently because it helps us to understand not only our purpose and identity, but what goes on there and what this is. The word cultivate and keep are also translated serve or tend, or guard, and protect. And when those two words occur together later in the Old Testament, without exception, they have this meaning of serving and guarding. It refers to Israelites either serving and guarding God's Word. But most often it, it, it is used of priests who are serving in God's temple and guarding the temple from unclean things. These concepts of serving and guarding are significant in the way that the Jews thought about the temple and the Torah. Yet they were the initial instructions given to Adam, who was to serve God in the garden and to protect the garden from unclean things. This was the role that Adam had of king and priest. And he failed his priestly role in protecting the garden from the unclean things when the serpent intruder enters the garden. And when Adam failed, he ex 
expelled Adam and Eve from the garden, and he sets up two cherubim to then do what Adam failed to do, to protect the garden from intrusion. Those cherubim and the work that they do is memorialized above the atoning lid of the ark in the Holy of Holies. You see two cherubim there protecting the holiness of God. That was our job, and we failed. But we see in the temple originally, now the cherubim in the garden, and now the cherubim in the tabernacle, subsequently in the temple, doing this work of priestly protection of the garden, of God's holy space. Third, the tree of life itself was also probably a model for the lampstand that would come in later that was displayed in the holy place outside of the Holy of Holies in Israel's temple. It looked like a small tree trunk and then had seven protruding branches, three on one side and three on the other side. Uh, and, and, and there's some identity in terms of the tree and the lampstand. Fourth, the Garden of Eden was the first temple, and it also suggests by observing Israel's later temples that we, we see wood carvings and we see aspects of creature, uh, creation that were specifically identified and carved into the places of the latter temples. In other words, creation is very much and inseparably a part of God's space. There were carvings of cherubim, there were palm trees, there were open flowers, there were pomegranates carved into the furniture in the temple. Fifth, just as the entrance to Israel's later temple faced east and was on a mountain, so also was Eden facing east and on a mountain. The mountains often symbolize the, the ascension up into the heights that we're going into the heavens. Again, temple being this place where earth and heaven comes together. Six, the Ark of the Holy of Holies, which contained the law, that law which led to wisdom and the righteous way to lead, lead, live life, echoes the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which also led to wisdom. The touching of either one resulted in death. Seventh, just as a, a river flowed out of Eden and then nurtured and flourished throughout the rest of uh, the world, so the eschatological temple we see in Ezekiel has these terminology that we're going to find once again in Revelation 21 and 22, where the river is flowing out from underneath the throne and out into the land. If you pay attention to the Psalms very carefully, you're going to see themes of fertility and of rivers that are descriptive of or even a part of God's temple. Eight, it may be even discernible to see categories or, or separations of space within the temple itself 
where Eden corresponds to then later temples, where you have the greater courtyard, you have the holy place, and you have the holy of holies. And as you get closer to the presence where God dwells upon this earth, you have an increasingly restricted uh, entrance or availability unto God's holiness through these restrictions. And one can all perhaps perceive the increasing gradation of holiness from outside the garden proceeding inward where there's Eden and that's where the presence of God dwells, complement to the Holy of Holies. And the garden itself is a sacred space which is separated from the rest of creation, the, the holy place, which the rest of creation is these, this outer court. We see Ezekiel connecting uh, the Garden of Eden as a ninth point to the future eschatological temple. So as Ezekiel is standing in the time of history after creation, after the fall, yet looking forward to the eschatological fulfillment, he has this unusual vision of really an unusual temple, of which there's been a lot of argument today about. But through this vision and these symbols, he deliberately marries into that temple the Garden of Eden, specifically calling it out by name several times, I think particularly in chapter 28. See, man was put on earth to tend God's garden and to protect it, to fulfill kingly and priestly duties upon this earth. He was given to rule over and subdue the earth, and to extend the geographical boundaries of the Garden of Eden till the Eden itself then encompassed the entirety of the earth. And that meant that the presence of God was in some way from our perspective in this holy space upon the earth limited to Eden, but then he was employing us as his agents and image bearers to then extend that throughout the whole earth until the entirety of the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters do the sea. And the purpose of this temple project, this creational project from the beginning, was to extend God's glory to cover the entirety of the earth. And that was a part of our kingly and our priestly responsibilities. After the fall, things fell apart from our perspective because we, we had forfeited and rebelled against that very thing for which we were created. And yet God restores things and begins to show us how he's going to restore these things. And, and so we see in the tabernacle and the temple a, a little replica of the entire world. And that's why we see in prophecies and even in the Psalms, which you hopefully will really pay attention to with this theme in mind. Isaiah 66.1 says, God says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you can build for me? 
And as he is declaring, really, the, the house of the temple is but a signpost. It's not the essence. It's not the reality. It's showing us something that failed, that we failed in, and that God was restoring and pointing us to Jesus, the Messiah, giving us a time when he would come and preparing a body to be that temple. You see, God never intended Israel's little localized temple to last forever. And since, like the Eden temple, Israel's temple was a small model of something much larger, God and his universal presence, which would never be contained in a localized earthly structure, showed something much bigger than what the Jews had ever imagined. And Jesus came to do exactly what Adam failed to do. He came to fulfill the law. He came to serve God. He came to protect the garden. He came to, in His righteousness, bring righteousness to earth. He came to restore the garden. And He came to restore the place where God, once again, will walk with man in the cool of the day. Christ is the one who actually is the Jacob's ladder that goes from the earth to heaven and angels ascending and descending upon it. Christ is where the heavens and the earth come together once again in harmony and peace in the shalom of God. Jesus is the one that comes down to extend the borders of the garden so that the knowledge of the glory of God will go to all of the earth as the waters cover the sea. And as the disciples began to show Jesus, look, Jesus, showing him around. Look at the buildings. Herod had taken the second temple, and for 46 years, by the time he was there, when Jesus came, this temple had been worked on for 46 years, continuing to embellish it and to grow it and to try to bring it back to a former glory, even try to exceed the former glory. Now, the prophets did say that this second temple in which the Jews saw, and many of them lamented and cried because they saw that it was not going to be anywhere near the former glory. God says, it will be more glorious, but it wasn't because of the Herod embellishments. It was because of the Messiah who would come in that temple that would then become the new temple of the new creation and the new heavens and the new earth. He's the essence of what the temple is all about. And as the disciples were showing him, they were just showing him something of just the signs. Jesus, look at Look at this. And he, they were unknowingly, they were just showing him all the signposts, but they were all pointing to him. 
It's like I mentioned in my illustration, it's like if I'm trying to describe to you my wife and she's right here in the room and I'm showing you a picture of her and I keep talking about the picture and I keep pointing to the picture and she's right here. There's no sense in talking about the picture when I can introduce you to the real woman. And that's the idea. Why talk about all these buildings when Jesus says they're going to be destroyed? I'm showing you something that is much more profound with cosmic proportion and bringing heaven to earth together, invisible and visible. And Jesus' body would be that. Where heaven and earth come together, they come together in the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. Where man is restated in his place, in God's new creation as kings, as priests, where we even now are seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, co-reigning with Him. And yet we are looking forward to a second advent when He comes in that bodily, physical form and He makes all things new. Now the temple is the resurrection, resurrected body of Jesus Christ, which is now inseparably united to His church. And the true church, inseparably united with the body of Christ, is where the Shekinah glory of God dwells. This is where God dwells with His people. This is the God space that not only is limited to a building, but can go throughout the entirety of this world. That is why the body of Christ is so essential to our Christian faith. That is why the incarnation is so important. That is why the death, burial, and resurrection are essential and actually makes the sense of His incarnation. It's why His bodily ascension and His bodily return are so fundamental. That is why this earth is something that God has noticed and the earth continues to groan until His return, but this earth, God still has a plan for it and the new heavens and the new earth will have an identity with its current one, but glorified. That's why there's things that are going on down here. That's why the heaven in Revelation 21 and 22 the, the new Jerusalem, this bride of Christ comes down here. That's why God comes down here. That's why this temple, garden city, in Revelation 21 and 22 is where this is all going. That's why worldwide evangelism and discipleship is how we now take communion over the earth in the new creation. That's why it's so incumbent upon us to be the king's and taking God's wisdom throughout the world, while at the same time being the priest and protecting His holy things from the defilement of the world. We are called not to limit God's glorious presence to a, a building somewhere in the Middle East, but rather extend that throughout the entirety of the world. That's our mission. That's our calling. It is something we will never be able to fulfill in our flesh, but something God has promised we will fulfill by the power of His Spirit to willing agents 
who are gladly doing his will. This is why God needed to destroy that temple. It had served its purpose, and now it was time to go. It is what all the hope of the Jews had placed their hope in. But they weren't willing to hear of the essence and see the worldview in the way that God had taught them. He had told them these things from the beginning. He continued to reveal details, and now in Christ the illumination would be clear. And here we are coming to the Lord's Supper, and we will now partake sacramentally of Jesus' body and His life-giving blood. And we will come through the veil, which is His flesh, broken for you and broken for me, into the mighty holy place of the holy of holies where God's presence is in the fullness here. And we come into the presence of God by God's own invitation. And we can boldly come there to receive grace and mercy in our time of need. And it is Jesus that is the way and the truth and the life. It's a worldview. It is a worldview. This is the way we now need to see the world. Colossians 1, 9 and 10 says, For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Bodily. And then it says, And you are complete in him. In Christ, the fullness of the Godhead in body. And because of that, you are complete in him. That's the worldview we need to maintain. There's nothing that you lack. Everything you have is available to you in Christ. The holiness that you need, the obedience that you need, the fulfillment of the law that you need, the satisfaction of, of the wrath of God for your sin, all of those things are now settled in Christ and you are complete in Him. You lack nothing Rest in his provision and seek his peace and rest in what he has done. That is why our psalm of the day speaks about, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to this temple. Let us go to the sanctuary of God. And as we pray for the church, which is united to Jesus Christ, that's what we do. We pray for the peace in God's church so that his presence will be made known throughout the entirety of this world. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the body of Christ that you have prepared for him. And now you have inseparably united us to that body, knowing that we will have a resurrection that follows after His. And until that time, we eat with Him, we dine with Him, and we experience His life and His power while we continue to do His work upon this earth so long as we live here. We pray that You would energize us to have a, a vision for worldwide missions and discipleship but just as much that we would have a heart and a vision for our next-door neighbor and for our children. And so grant, Lord, we pray, 
that this church would be faithful in fulfilling our duties, our responsibility, our great privilege, our great joy. As we rest in Christ, we ask that you would expand the borders of the garden to fill this county up with the knowledge of the glory of God. And we pray that you would bless our ministry and the work of our hands. To that end, we pray. We pray this in the strong, living name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.